0: Thank you for joining us for this conversation on pandemic preparedness with Dr. Rick Bright, Senior Vice President of Pandemic Prevention and Response at the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm Catherine Chaney, a senior reporter at DevEx focused on technology and innovation, and I'm thrilled to be moderating this event. This is part of a series of conversations on technology, innovation, and global health underwritten by the Novartis Foundation. You can join and follow the conversation using the hashtag DevExNewsMaker. I should note, we will be sending a recording of this event to all attendees, so so stay tuned for that. Before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to provide a bit of background. So Rick joined the Rockefeller Foundation in March of this year to develop a Pandemic Prevention Institute. He's building a consortium focused on science, technology, and data to create an early warning system for future pandemics. Prior to joining the Rockefeller Foundation, Rick was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. Rick resigned from government service in protest over the way former U.S. President Donald Trump's administration handled the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the topics we'll get into today is genomic surveillance, which is a topic that's really come into the spotlight as variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus spread across the globe. Genomic sequencing is a process that allows scientists to decode the genes of the virus and learn how it changes over time. And globally networked genomic surveillance is one of the major gaps in pandemic prevention, according to the recent G20 high-level independent report, a global deal for our pandemic age. I look forward to hearing from Rick about what steps he's taking to ensure the world has accurate, standardized, and shared surveillance data to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and ensure the world is more prepared for the next crisis. Rick, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Catherine, thank you for doing this. I'm glad to be here with you today.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I first, I wanted to start with uh, an analogy actually that I, I heard you present. In preparing for this interview, I was listening to a podcast where you talked about how we need to think about viruses in the same way we think about weather. And with weather, we have this globally coordinated system, of understanding, tracking, and warning, threats coming our way, what we can do to prepare, we don't quite have the same uh, setup for viruses. So can you expand on this analogy and how it's part of the big vision you're working toward?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good analogy. When you think about it, any one of us, no matter how educated or where we are in the world, can open, a map, open an app or turn on the television or the radio, and we can hear uh, the, about the weather. We know when a storm's coming days or weeks away, uh, if a hurricane's brewing out in the middle of the ocean somewhere or a typhoon, depending on where you are in the world, And somehow all that data is collected uh, in a global coordinated way, be it signals from the sun or signals from somewhere deep below the the Earth's surface or um, in our environment or being beamed from, from satellites somewhere around the world. That all comes together in a very complex and complicated way that's invisible to each of us. But we do know before we step outside each morning if it's going to rain, if we should take an umbrella, um, or if we should um, batten up our hatches and and board up our our windows because a uh, terrible hurricane or storm is coming our way. It's amazing that we can have um, viruses, deadly viruses and pathogens, um, antimicrobial um, resistant um, bacteria spread among us, all around us um, from country to country uh, and continent to continent and have no, Clue or no inkling or no warning that they're coming our way, and the the data and the systems that are associated with those viruses or those pathogens are spreading is centralized. It's controlled. It's managed. It is um, siloed in so many ways that the average person really doesn't know what's coming their way, and really doesn't know what measures they can take to protect themselves or their family. So our vision at the Pandemic Prevention Institute is to capture these data, traditional um, public health data um, with non-traditional data. And I'll get into that more um, soon. But bring that all together and translate it in a way that you or I or someone anywhere in the world can open an app or turn on the television and know that there's a deadly virus in their community. And here are the simple things you can do to protect your family and stop the spread of that pathogen.
0: Well, let's go ahead and talk about this issue of data. You mentioned that you could expand on what you mean by non-traditional data. So what kinds of data, uh, both traditional and non-traditional, do we need to be collecting in order to build this early warning system?
1: I mean, that's a really good question. And and most people probably are less familiar with traditional public health data than the non-traditional data that I think is really important to bring together with public health data. Traditional public health data are things that I call lagging indicators. They are uh, clinical samples, um, isolates from your nose swab or your throat swab, or maybe a swab in an open wound on your arm that can be characterized uh, in a clinical lab and identify a particular pathogen that might already be infecting uh, the human population. By the time a pathogen, a virus or bacteria infects people at a high enough level that they're going into the clinic and seeing a doctor and getting those specimens, that pathogen already has a really good hold probably in the human population. It's probably spread quite a ways. Um, or it wouldn't be detected as an anomaly in the human population. The non-traditional data that I think is really important are what I call more leading indicators. Those are environmental samples. Those are um, samples that can be collected from the air, um, from the environment, such as wastewater, community wastewater, that would tell us that there is a novel pathogen in that community even before it's detected in clinical specimens for example in many parts of the world there is a low ratio of patient and doctor visits and in the united states you know and in other countries developed countries there's a lot of um, clinical interaction but in many parts in lower middle income countries there is not as much clinical interaction and so we can pick up those new pathogens in the community wastewater much sooner in in the clinical office there are also even more leading indicators, earlier indicators that uh, we can detect such as consumerism, um, mobility, foot traffic. You know, in the early days of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we're now seeing that a company that was able to track flight patterns, mobility patterns, noticed a phenomenon very early, last uh, at the late part of 2019, of of people fleeing parts of china the increased travel um, and transportation uptick um, from parts of china into other parts of the world um, indicated that something unusual was happening in that region satellite images actually picked up an increase of ambulance traffic and cars in parking lots at the hospitals in different parts of china and then once the the SARS-CoV-2 virus spread out of China into other countries. We saw that picked up in Vietnam. We saw that picked up in, in Italy, for example, and the, even then in the United States. So it's the ability to combine all these other non-traditional data sets, which I call leading indicators, and compile those with your traditional lagging indicators in public health. That gives us a really unique multi-sectoral complex insight a much smarter hypothesis, that something unusual is happening in an area that we should then send in more experienced people into that site to get clinical samples and environmental samples to characterize what's really happening. That I believe would give us a much earlier warning signal, much more complex, where something's happening and where it's going that will allow us to get in front of an outbreak and stop it before it spreads beyond that initial outbreak site.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to hear how that effort to bring together these disparate data sets and these uh, leading indicators factors into your work at the Pandemic Prevention Institute. But first, just kind of on a high level, I want to understand a little bit more the goals of the Pandemic Prevention Institute, where you are with it. So uh, my understanding is you're working to avert future pandemics by identifying and responding to the earliest alerts of a disease outbreak and stopping it in the first 100 days. So we would be in a very different position than we were in with COVID-19. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about the effort, what steps you've taken so far, and then maybe we can cover how the data work fits into that broader picture.
1: Yes, at the highest level, the goal of the Pandemic Prevention Institute is be able to detect something happening much earlier in a very reliable way and translate that information into action to give the world a signal and a warning signal that we need to take action to stop an outbreak at the highest level. Um, as we all saw with the, um, the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 pandemic, it caught the world off guard. But there's no reason why it should have done so. We were unfortunate to see many breakdowns and I think avoidable breakdowns in what I call this data to action pathway. And the Pandemic Prevention Institute is working to fill those critical gaps between the data and the action to trigger um, an appropriate response, a trusted response, to be able to alert the world that something's happening and we need to take steps to contain it. There is currently no single threat detection system that is trusted and used worldwide. At the Rockefeller Foundation, what we're doing is developing this system. And one of the first steps is to build trust and build partnerships to scale up our abilities to share information and share knowledge and share data. It's amazing the amount of data that are all around us in developed countries, in lower and middle income countries as well. But it's fragmented, it's siloed, it's disconnected is often under the control of a government anywhere in the world. And in in the control of the information by governments, um, sharing that information is often delayed or, um, in some cases, uh, manipulated, even as we saw, I think, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. And so what we want to build with the Pandemic Prevention Institute is an independent, non-governmental entity that can work with partners around the world, building on trust and collaboration and a willingness to share information and shared data in real time to be able to provide reliable, trusted information around the world to everyone at the same time. We're doing that already. We're focusing initially on scaling up genomic sequencing capabilities and tying that information and sharing it into a global database that will enable both local and global knowledge at the same time. Some examples of that already happening with our institute is a partnership with the Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. At this center, we are supporting the training of scientists from different parts of the African continent. Right now, we're training scientists from Malawi, from Uganda and Namibia and several other countries across Africa. With the old adage, teach a person to fish, teach them how to do the genomic surveillance, teach them how to use the tools to understand what's happening in their community, and give them that architecture of trust and architecture, a digital architecture to share that information as rapidly as possible. These scientists are now leaving the the Stellenbosch University Training Center in South Africa, going back to their countries, conducting their own genomic surveillance and sharing that in the GISAID database. In doing so, they've already been able to identify and track and trace novel variants of SARS-CoV-2 that are being detected across Africa. We're doing something very similar across India in supporting and working with the largest sequencing center within, it's called an ENSACOG Alliance, which stands for the Indian SARS-CoV-2 Consortium on Genomics. We're helping to expand their genomic surveillance capabilities while improving the sampling patterns to ensure that we have more diversity in the samples being collected. We're setting those standards it's not just about more, more isn't always better. It's about sequencing smarter and making sure we're getting a diverse representation of the samples that are being evaluated so we can really understand this virus, where it's emerging, where it's spreading and how it's changing. And then it's very important to remember that it's not just about a sequence. Sequencing alone really doesn't tell you anything at all. So we're working with hospitals and healthcare centers to collect that metadata and that epidemiological data. So information about the patient from, from which the sample was collected. Was that patient vaccinated or, or unvaccinated? If it was vaccinated, was it a breakthrough case? Um, what vaccine did that patient receive? Adding together all these different components and different types of data with that sequence data gives us much richer context to better understand this outbreak. We're working with a group that is now tracking vaccine breakthrough cases across the United States and we'll be able to expand that globally very soon. It's really important to know when we see people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus after they've been fully vaccinated, um, we need to understand why they were still infected. Did the virus change? Is the vaccine immunity um, waning? Um, Is it a particular vaccine that is not performing as well as some of the other vaccines? This is the only way we're going to understand how this virus is changing, where it's spreading is the only way we're going to be able to get in front of this virus to contain it and stop it.
0: I want to ask you one specific question. This actually came in from a member of our DevEx community, a loyal reader, who's a global health technology entrepreneur. And, And she wrote me with a great question. She said, I find that lately conversations around pandemic preparedness focus on surveillance data, which of course you've highlighted, but never on the data that underpins the infrastructure that delivers the care. And so she asks, how do you see public health infrastructure and data to keep it operational as critical to pandemic preparedness? So can you comment on that? And how does that factor into your work?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, a a really good observation um, from your your listener. You know, we talk a lot about the the infrastructure to collect data, genomic sequence data and and share that data. But we're also seeing in real time in this pandemic, the challenge with the public health health infrastructure in our ability to distribute medical countermeasures, distribute vaccines, distribute therapeutics, and and personal protective equipment, such as respirators and and ventilators, um, without a strong public health infrastructure in every community, then the tools that we build, be it um, information um, architecture to share data and information, be it a distribution system to distribute these critical supplies and medical countermeasures, um, it's really unimpactful and it's really useless for us to have these tools if we do not have a solid public health infrastructure to, by which we can deliver that information, by which we can collect those data, by which we can respond to an outbreak in those areas, to know where we're seeing an overburden of a hospital system or a breakdown of a hospital system, to see where we need to funnel or filter more supplies, more therapeutics, or more vaccines in a particular area, or see where we need to change course and and do less of what we're doing that is not having as much of an impact so the basic public health infrastructure is just as if not more critical to make sure that we are building and sustaining in everyday times so it can withhold the pressure of an outbreak of a pandemic or a public health emergency as it is to Focus on the development of new infrastructure for genomic surveillance and other types of supply chains.
0: Great point, and thank you um, for the question. Uh, I, I don't know if she wants to be named, so I'll leave her anonymous. But I really appreciated that perspective. Um, so, in terms of challenges that lie ahead, um, you know, I mentioned earlier how this recent G20 high-level independent panel identified this globally networked surveillance as a major gap. Um, But as you look to leverage tools of science and technology and data in your work, what are the other big gaps? What are the areas where we need more technology, we need more innovation?
1: Catherine, we need it across the board, to be honest with you. Um, You know, I talk a lot about the early warning signals because I believe that if we don't have an early warning signal, then you know we don't have any way to trigger the activities that happen downstream in terms of turning on the ability to make drugs and vaccines and diagnostics and and um, personal protective equipment however when i worked at barda i was able to see the breakdown of a number of the systems that we use to make these drugs and vaccines and diagnostics. And I developed what I called an end-to-end spectrum of innovation that was required to be able to effectively and efficiently detect and respond to a pandemic or a public health emergency. In it, I identified the need for innovation not only in early warnings and early warning signals, but we need to innovate diagnostics. We need to put diagnostics and tests into the hands of every person on the planet. We cannot expect that we're going to centralize diagnostics and people have to go to a center for a sample to be collected and the sample shipped across the country or around the world and take days or weeks to get back as we saw in the outbreak. Uh, early outset of this um, pandemic we need to innovate diagnostics that they're in the home they're on the body people have an early signal when something has happened to them or someone in their family we need to innovate on how we um, identify and characterize novel pathogens and do a quick assessment to see if we already have a drug or a vaccine or a diagnostic that's going to work effectively and if we don't We need to innovate how we develop those new drugs, vaccines and diagnostics and characterize them in clinical trials and clinical trial design. We need to innovate in how we manufacture those drugs and vaccines and diagnostics and make sure that we have redundancy around the world. So the entire world isn't waiting on three or four or five countries to make a bolus of drug or vaccine or diagnostic and ship it around the world. We see how that does not work well in this pandemic. I could have told you years before this pandemic, that's exactly how it would play out. And it's playing out exactly how we predicted. So we need to make sure that we're investing in innovation to reduce the footprint and complexity of drug and vaccine development. And we have regional and global distribution of those capabilities. We also have to look at how we distribute those medical countermeasures. It's really not efficient to think that we have to put everything on an airplane or the back of a big truck and ship it across the country or around the globe to get us where it needs to go. There's so many new technologies that we can use to distribute those vaccines. And then finally, I think at the far end of that continuum isn't that last mile of distribution, but it's that last inch of administration we need to make sure that the drugs and vaccines we're developing are easy to administer, we can remove the needle and syringe from the entire process, we can use technologies to put vaccines on patches for self administration, we need to focus on therapeutics that are orally delivered, or some other simple way of delivering these. And so I can go on all day long. um, But innovation, actually, um, it's right. all these areas are ripe for innovation. We've seen a lot of that um, in this pandemic. I've been really impressed at the entrepreneurs and the innovators who have stepped forward, either in small companies, in the biotech, or the large pharmaceutical sector, and how they work together to bring some of these innovations to play in this current pandemic. Mm-hmm. What I'm afraid of is when the pandemic starts to wane and we start to move on, that this momentum is lost. So we need to make sure that we sustain this momentum so all these innovations are brought to life so they're in place before the next outbreak.
0: I think you really provided a useful overview of where innovation is needed, where it's happening, and the need to maintain momentum. And yet one, one concern that many readers have shared with me is what about all these other health priorities that aren't getting the funding, attention, innovation they need? With so much focus being on responding to COVID-19 and pandemic preparedness, so to, to form that in the form of a question, um, you know, I've heard some people caution that there's a formation of a pandemic industry of sorts, and that this could be really dangerous for other areas of global health that have really been neglected over the course of COVID-19, especially in countries where those knock-on effects, things like impacts to you know maternal and infant mortality or HIV/AIDS or malaria could actually be more deadly than the threat posed by COVID itself. So what's, what's your response to that? The need to you know, invest in innovation and maintain momentum on this front in terms of responding to COVID and pandemic preparedness, but what about everything else?
1: Well, there's there's that's, that's a really good question, by the way. Um, and it seems the world in many cases when we have a public health emergency um, becomes singly focused and there are many other what you call knock-on effects in other areas of need. And actually, there are other things that um, become even more critical in the context of a pandemic, such as mental health uh, and, and drug abuse and addiction and, and isolation, loneliness, depression, suicide. These other things happen in developed and in, in, in developing countries as well, as well as as you described, the other public health crises that we have to still deal with. So um, my con- my response to that very good question is number one, we have to, as we get through a global pandemic, we have to recognize that it is a global crisis, but we cannot respond to it the same way in every single place, we have to look at the nuance and the local nature and character of an outbreak. Uh, we can't go into lockdowns around the entire world at once but there might be times where we need to restrict mobilization and socialization in one part of the world and not in the other parts of the world so we need to look at the local nuances to a global response for a pandemic and then at the same time when we talk about innovation in all these various areas right now we're we're we're, we have a lot of momentum on innovation to respond to and deal with the COVID 19 pandemic And when we invest in these innovations, we need to make sure that we're investing in a platform system, a structure, an architecture that is applicable to many other diseases. How can the investments we make for COVID-19 be applicable to um, an outbreak of tracking and monitoring for tuberculosis or HIV still or cholera or antimicrobial resistance? And we have to keep our eye on all these balls as well as um, threats that we don't even know about that could emerge um, either as a consequence to the COVID-19 pandemic or that will soon follow the pandemic or that might even happen in parallel and have a twindemic um, situation on our hands as we might see with influenza for example in combination with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So um, it's a very good question. I'll go back to a simple answer. We have to respond globally, but we have to really look at those local nuances and make sure that the things we're doing locally make sense for that part of the outbreak. As we all unify for global response, and then as we make investments, we have to make sure that they're not just for SARS-CoV-2, they are broad spectrum and platform in nature, so they'll be beneficial for every outbreak going forward.
0: So while we're primarily focusing on global issues in our conversation today, with a particular focus on low and middle income countries, I do want to zoom in domestically for a moment. And obviously the Trump administration and the Biden administration have taken very different approaches in their response to COVID-19. You've actively worked with both administrations. I wonder if you can talk about what we can learn from the mistakes and successes of the US response to COVID-19 and what implications the U.S. response has globally?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. It gets tricky, um, and it actually, um, one of the major differences that I see in the current administration um, is the willingness to put science in the lead over politics. Um, you know, by nature, a response to a pandemic or, or a public health emergency is going to be political because there are decisions that need to be made at the policy level at the political level but it's really important that those policy decisions and those political decisions are made based on science in the previous administration i saw a lot of decisions being made um, in spite of science i would say and without scientific evidence um, a push and a rush to advance um, treatments or or technologies or um, things that were supported by um, um, lobbyists or uh, family members or acquaintances of politicians that didn't have any science to back them. And in this administration, I was really glad to see the commitment that President Biden made upfront about allowing science to lead what's really been encouraging is seeing him place scientists in key positions in his administration, in the White House, in the uh, response um, task force, and even on the cabinet level, where we didn't have a science, where science didn't have as much of a voice. And another part that I've really been impressed is seeing how the Biden administration is listening more to the scientific community. I know I'm involved in and I know other scientists involved and scientists from the public sector and and the private sector are involved in a lot of listening sessions from this administration when they are are considering different policies or different um, changes or or, um, areas to support. They actually bring in a broad Um, community of scientists uh, from different sectors and different voices, um, to be able to hear what we have to say, and use that to inform their policy decisions. And another major difference I see in this administration is an effort to reach more communities. And as we saw in the outset of this uh, pandemic, this disparities across our country, and the access to information, reliable information, access to drugs and, and vaccines and, and tests, um, and a really a huge difference um, from um, um, in different populations. And, and the equity was a challenge in the prior administration, where this administration, again, has put people on the task force in the White House whose job is to focus on equity and focus on how we can reach into those communities and make sure that our messaging is reaching the the harder to reach communities, making sure that we are getting those tools and vaccines and diagnostic tests into those communities and making sure that we are training the messengers to message in a way that traditional politicians or scientists can't message. And so the context or the the consequence of this new effort in this administration is improving the trust. What I saw in the last administration was an erosion of trust at every level. What I see in this administration has been an uphill battle to rekindle that trust. But progress is being made because of the commitments at the highest level and the ability to permeate all communities across our country, and also to re-engage globally. Where in the last administration, there was this isolationism, this nationalism, um, that separated us in the United States from our allies, that separated us from the World Health Organization and others trying to put together a global response to this pandemic. The Biden administration has made a conscious effort to rejoin those global discussions and to contribute to those global efforts to make sure that. While we are trying our best to protect Americans and and have the strongest domestic response we can possibly have, we're also partnering with those around the world, our allies once again, sharing information, making contribution to global organizations that are also doing a great job at getting vaccines and drugs and diagnostics distributed globally. A recognition by the Biden administration that this is a global crisis. We're gonna strengthen our domestic capabilities to protect Americans at the same time, we're gonna participate in the global response to end the pandemic everywhere, so we can also end it here.
0: Thank you, and a final question for you, and now we'll zoom out globally again, um, but in terms of what success looks like, I mean, you've outlined some of your goals, you've outlined some of your work so far, um, but ultimately a huge goal here is to scale up pandemic preparedness everywhere, including in low and middle income countries. So just as a final thought, um, you know, you're doing important work on this front. More work needs to be done by a range of stakeholders. So do you have any final thoughts or calls to action for this group on how, you know, people from various sectors can play a role in scaling up pandemic preparedness, especially in lower resource settings?
1: Yes. well, just a a statement that no single group will ever be able to do this alone It's going to take all of us from every sector, every community across the the globe to come together, we have to build on the principles of collaboration and sharing and trust. It's amazing the different tools and 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 technologies that we can build, but we have to make sure that they're available and accessible to everyone everywhere. They're affordable, and they're um, usable to get actionable information to everyone at the same time. If we do not build this architecture of trust, at the same time we're building digital architectures and pipeline and supply chain architectures, then we won't have a reliable system that people will trust and that people will follow when they need to to respond to a global crisis once again. So we have to focus on building the bridges person-to-person, community-to-community at the local level, local ownership that's shared globally. And we had to connect the public sectors with the private sector, with the philanthropic sectors into this ecosystem, a community that is willing to collect information and share information and translate and, and respond globally if we're ever going to hope to be able to stop any outbreak from once again becoming a devastating pandemic.
0: Rick, thanks so much for your time, and looking forward to following your work.
1: Thank you, Catherine, I enjoyed it.
0: So now I'd like to welcome Jason Shelleby, who's director of global health policy at the Novartis Foundation, for his reactions to the conversation. Jason,
2: well, thank you, Catherine and Rick. That was a, that was a really interesting discussion, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all as well. Now, I just want to take a couple you know, minutes to, to share some of the, the insights that, that we heard here. Um, I think this example of you know, how we use information around the weather is really helpful to think about this need to really accelerate the shift towards real-time data when it comes to surveillance for pandemics, but also really when we think about healthcare systems more generally, you know, we really need to think about how we help them shape and shift from being reactive to proactive and predictive when it comes to improving the health of populations and preparing themselves to be ready to address future pandemics down the line. Now, in addition, I think Rick was right. You know, we really think about as well, how are we you know, sustaining this momentum of innovation? And that's really innovation that's taking place across the board. We know that thinking about what are those kind of, you know, in their early signals uh, and surveillance are really important in how we build up the infrastructure for that. We're also thinking, how do we empower individuals in this role and also thinking about diagnostics that can be given uh, for all to really be more aware of the health, but also to be able to be part of the solution when other pandemics, other symptoms may arise. And also, I think as part of this innovation here, is thinking about how do we think about public health approaches, right, and make sure that they're more um, locally nuanced and really taking in the context and settings in which populations live. so, So with that note, I think there's also an element that he brought up again about thinking about non-healthcare data and integrating it with um, traditional healthcare data sets and this is something that the virus foundation we think is a really interesting and important uh, point to address and an opportunity really at this time where we know that determinants of health have had a, a you know a disproportionate impact on on populations and on, on patients when it comes to covid right whether it be chronic disease patients who have had higher levels of, of you know uh, mortality when it comes to covid But also thinking about when you look at those kind of social determinants, you could actually predict which populations were most at risk, either having COVID or having, more, you know, COVID mortality rates higher than others, but also that linked up to similar patterns that we've seen now with uptake of vaccinations. So again, we think there's really an opportunity here to merge social, environmental, commercial, um, economic data with traditional clinical uh, data to think about. What are the insights that might tell us in terms of what are the key determinants that really have an outsized impact on population health and therefore help policymakers think through what are the, the key priorities and targeted investments that they can make to improve population health and finally one one aspect else i just wanted to kind of finish with and i thought it was really nicely said by rick is how do we focus on building these architectures of trust right because if whether it be in terms of deploying and strengthening supply chains for innovative vaccines, or that is about, you know, shaping this digital pipeline and thinking about all the complexities of integrating fragmented data around the world, or even this really interesting point that was mentioned by one of the persons in the audience around the public health infrastructure, right, and the the associated workforce that needs to operate in this digital era, this new post-pandemic world, right, we really need to think about how can every sector play a role to ensure that they can improve the health of populations and ensure that all Innovations and solutions are available to everyone. So, so with those thoughts, I, I want to thank again the audience for joining us today and for this really interesting, interesting conversation. And I wish you all a good day.
0: Thank you, Jason. And thanks again to the Novartis Foundation for underwriting this Newsmaker series. Thank you to Dr. Rick Bright and to all of you for joining us. And again, you can follow the conversation using the hashtag DevXNewsmaker, and we'll be in touch with a recording that we encourage you to share.